Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. This week on Into the Archives with the Boone Podcast, this guy's simply one of the greatest to ever do it, especially one of the greatest left-handers to ever do it. He was a 10-time All-Star. He won four Cy Young Award winners. He's got more awards than I have time uh, in this announcement. He's a baseball Hall of Famer, left-hander Steve Carlton. Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Steve, thanks for coming on the program. How do you remember that far back? Really? <laughs> I was it's around when they invented the wheel. Remember that? <laughs> That's right. I hear you. Recent, recently, I had run well. Recently. Recently, I had Ron Jaworski on the uh, on the show. Now, you 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 guys used to share the vet with the Eagles. Ron Jaworski, your time in Philly, he was the quarterback, and he was sharing some stories to me. and And I remember because I was a little kid running around. The name Roman Gabriel was a quarterback for the Eagles in the early seventies. Yeah. yeah who introduced you, and I remember this fondly as a young kid coming to the ballpark in the offseason watching you. you rec- I think you ended up recruiting my dad. The name Gus Heffling. Tell me how yep. that all started. I think it was in the early 70s, and, and it was martial arts training. And, and this was well before you know, the, the current game in 2021 where the athletes today, it's, it's a prerequisite. It's not something unusual to train, but you were kind of doing it before mm-hmm. everybody was doing it. Well, that, uh, that's interesting. So I happened to be there in the wintertime. I, I can't remember why I was in Philadelphia. But uh, I went to the vet, and um, Lazinski and Bo, I think, were training with Gus at that time. And, uh, and I actually really carpentered to his, to his greatness. You know, really was a, he wanted to know what was going on. So he trained with Gus through the wintertime. And I, I went in there and... Uh, uh, first uh, ran into Gus, and I, at that time I was a black belt in Shotokan karate. So I was thinking, who who is this? Who is this whole guy? You know, <laughs> you know how that goes. And I, you know, went and got my gear on and trained with him. I said, holy shit, this is this is a lot, you know. So he was he was an amazing trainer. He was he was very more than proficient at the at the martial arts. But but what what got Gus to Philadelphia was Roman Gabriel when Roman came over from the Rams. He brought Gus because he was um, Gus was Roman's uh, personal trainer at that time with the Rams, so he brought him with them. So that's how Gus got to Philadelphia, and then um, we trained, and everybody liked what Gus had to do. So uh, really, really, actually, really, uh, 
hired him away from the from the Eagles. So really liked what he was doing. He thought really thought that'd be good for me because he thought he could tame me a little bit, you know, because I didn't like running and I didn't uh, I didn't I always walked against the um, the running part of training. I hated running, so that's how Gus and I got together. Yeah, that's a long story, but uh, and he's Gus still still down in Florida and doing well. I wonder this. Today it's kind of normal, you know, and they talk about that that bucket of rice where you stick your hand in. Yeah. I remember you doing that. Were you was that something that Gus brought to you or was that something you you had come up with? Because it's kind of common now. Everybody knows, you know, you stick your hand in the rice bucket and you fight to the bottom of the rice bucket. No, that's, that's, it's not That's not that's not common. You think that's coming? I'm, no one. Well, bench, bench, bench came over, and he had those big, big, strong hands. He couldn't get get past his wrist. You know, it's not that easy. <laughs> right, but who who but who brought that into the clubhouse? No, that was a Gus deal. Gus oh, that was Gus. You know, yeah. And, well, you know, being Chinese martial arts, said that was in the system. It said uh, they didn't have York barbells back. You know that kind of stuff. So. They trained in, in mud or anything to get resistance from. So rice, rice trenches, rice buckets. We had a we had a thirty two gallon rice trash can we trained in, and then we had a fifth, about a fifteen foot long rice trench we trained our legs in. Amazing, uh, amazing resistance. What comes out of that is uh, because you, tra- you you train rotary instead of straight line like you do with barbells or, or machines. And it's just a, it's a different different level of training because there's a lot of rotary in it, so it takes a lot of the tissue that's not in line with the motion, you know, you know, your tendons and ligaments and stuff. So, yeah, a great great way to train. Well, and and when I say uh, common, yeah, I don't mean it's common mainstream in today's <laughs> society. You don't see kids at the gym sticking their their hands in rice buckets, but from from my upbringing, from growing up in the game, seeing the kind of the old school training ways you know i I go back to it seems like it's something on on uh i don't know if you've ever seen this this video it's fascinating to me is back in schwarzenegger's day it was called pumping iron it was a documentary and it was that old school gym you know your bet your your bag full of clothes on a rope you didn't have any locker it was that kind of that rocky balboa i I would i would think (laughs) in rocky's in 1976 in in rocky's gym there'd be a big old ice uh ice bucket that you were that you were talking about yeah that's that's true because that's what we that's what we had to train with but there wasn't a lot of uh like it is today you know because the trainer never wanted us to lift weights. Uh, they thought we were going to get muscle bound, especially for pitchers. And so when, when I was with the Cardinals before I came to the Phillies, I would sneak off and join the gym and lift during the wintertime. And every time I got stronger, because I was a skinny kid, you know, coming up. And every time I come back, spring training, I was throwing like a foot or two harder, you know. So I said, because uh, I needed, I, I knew I needed the strength, but the Cardinals were dead set against that. So uh, they didn't let me train with weights. So in the wintertime, I'd go off and train and, and get stronger and, and get better and just get, you know, just fat, better, better fastball, get more of a speed on your fastball. So now the, the training they have in the, in the, in the clubhouse is they got every, every weight imaginable. You know, they got, they got this stuff you run on, on the track underwater and stuff like that, you know, so it's crazy, crazy stuff they have. So I would, I would have never left the clubhouse by this kind of training. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty awesome today. Uh, yeah, you guys, and, and, yeah, you guys were around. You, were, you guys were kids back then, but you guys were around watching all this goofy stuff. I'm sure. 
I was, you know? I was. And the funny thing, you know, Gus Heffling almost became my, well, I don't know what you'd call it, step-grandfather. He dated my mom's mom, my grandma, Betty. <laughs> Next thing I know, you guys are doing kung fu with Gus in the winter, and, and Gus is taking grandma Betty on dates. So that's how really? close. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I got close to Gus and it was cool, but he's, he's my first member. Cause I got during my career, I got big time into training and working out, but I always remember that my first memories of training were, were you Gus and my dad doing Kung Fu kicks, you know, and I was probably three yeah. or four, yeah, four or five years old, oh, yeah. but uh, interesting. Yeah, I, remember, I remember those days. Yeah. I'm going to have to go on Gus about dating, dating granny though. <laughs> yeah. You dated grandma. All right, Steve Carlton, you're born and raised in Miami, Florida. Uh, tell me about Steve Carlton as a kid. I mean, I'm just uh, we're in North Miami. Uh, back then, there was there was not what the condos and the, all the resorts and everything. And I'm sort of on the edge of the Everglades and spent a lot of time. Just kids, you know, we're always throwing rocks and shooting 22s. And we have, you know, slingshots and stuff like that. It's crazy, just crazy stuff because that's, that was our entertainment. Yeah, we take the the top. Uh, you remember the Mac, the Maxwell coffee gallon? One of the big cans. We take the top off that and use it for a frisbee. You know, we have to bend the edges down so you'll cut your fingers. So that was our entertainment. We'd be in the Everglades doing our thing. You know, and I had a I had a I had a spider uh, collection as a kid. <laughs> we, we you know it's rural. We had nothing to do, so you had to get you have to get creative. So. Those those types of things spend a lot a lot of time climbing trees and doing stuff like that and developing your body, getting strong, you know, shoulder strong. So it, it, it helped a lot. That's why I was always an, an advocate for you know for lifting and, and any kind of resistance work. Because I did that as a kid. I did gymnastics in in high school and uh, you know I played uh, two sports and I, I almost got a, a I was I used to go down to the football field and warm up throwing the football. I could throw the you know football back then about seventy. 70 yards or so, and I, I got a one of the one of the scouts came over and said, "I'll give I'll give you a a, a full ride to play to play quarterback for Florida State." And I you know talked to my parents and said, "No, I don't think because I'm so skinny they don't want they don't want me to play football, so I'm, I might get busted, you know." So, but anyway, it was interesting. I, I I always had a good arm because I'm always throwing all the time. Today they don't throw a lot, but uh, you know back then we, that's all we had to do is create stuff, throw throw rocks, throw. Those softballs, those footballs, and whatever, those tin cans. Yeah, but it's, we were rural, you know. It's, you know, there's not, it was, we're just, whatever you can imagine, you know, on the edge of the Everglades, you know, we're just kind of rural people, you know. So that's how we grew up, Crocodile Dundee stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. Lefty, so lefty had, Dundee. <laughs> you end up going to uh, Miami Dade North. And yeah. uh, what were you, what was your what was your thoughts when you when you went to your first year uh, at Miami Dade? What, what were your expectations? Where were you heading in life? Did you always want to be a pitcher? The reason I went to you know graduating from high school. Yeah, here I'll tell you a quick story. My I didn't know there was a big leagues major league until my senior year in high school, when my my head coach or the coach for the baseball team. Coach Clark said, you know, you can make a living doing this. I said, what's that? <laughs> I swear to God, that's a true story. I did not know there was a big leagues. That's how rural things were, you know. 
And I had, I had a paper out. You think I'd read about that in the paper, but it was horse racing and college football is all I ever saw. So, but uh, but when I when I when I graduated, I, I said I didn't know what I, what I was going to do. So I just, so I'll just take the next step. And because uh, Miami Dade North had a good uh, basketball excuse me baseball team at that time, and I was going to go play for them, Debbie Maneri and those guys. And uh, and uh, I'm doing of all of all things, I'm doing business administration. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> and um and you know my my uh what what you know what are one of my coaches um amateur coaches came to me and said i want you to throw for the scouts coming down for his regional scout chase riddle coming down from for the cardinals i want you to throw for him on the side you know and i just okay because i don't know what i was getting into i said he's gonna see how good i am so i want to do is throw <laughs> throw as hard as i could i don't care what the backstop and I, I threw for Chase, and uh, he was impressed. And I only had the, t- the two pitches, fastball, curveball. And uh, he went back you know, to the main office and and told uh, the big league team they ought to they ought to you know watch me. So the the Cardinals flew me up to St. Louis, and I threw on the side for uh, Johnny Keene, who was the manager, and whoever else was watching. I remember Gibby it being out because they always come out and watch the kids throw, you know, the talent and. Um, and I threw for the big league team, you know, and that's how I got started. I went back. It was only, it was only one semester that I went back. I'm doing business administration, wondering what the hell am I doing here? And I said, well, give me that contract. Because I was still undecided if I was going to, you know, try to, because I was just a kid. I didn't know anything about anything pretty much. And I um, and I signed a contract and became an eligible to play for the uh, Maybe Dade North baseball team, and they—I think they won the national that year. They're a very good team. And anyway, I was ineligible, so that's—that was one semester junior college. Yay! <laughs> that was it. So yeah, you that was, that the was car- in, uh, yeah, that was in, uh, I think it was around November of '63. Um, it was. So, so 60- I signed for a '64 contract and. Uh, for obviously minor leagues, and uh, they, they, I think they're in Homestead, Florida. That first spring training, crazy about 250 kids in a in a big gymnasium kind of room, you know. Didn't know what you're gonna do. Gonna so how was that going? It. How was that going from, like you said, grew up in a real rural, rural area in in uh, Miami, Florida. You're in your senior year of high school, and you say you don't even know what the big leagues is. Next thing you know, you're off to Miami Dade for a semester. You sign with the Cardinals, and you get thrown into the minor leagues. How was that adjustment for a kid that just basically said, "Yeah, I'm just here, and I know I can throw"? Uh, how was that? Because I look at your, I looked at doing my homework for this. I look at your minor, I looked at your minor league stats, and you tore it up in the minor leagues, like. It's kind of a Bo Jackson thing. It's no, I pitch. Where do I pitch? You you go here. It's sixty feet six inches and strike this guy out. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, four teams the first year in '64. You know, I started in A, Double A, no A, higher A and then Double A than the big league. So, and I was just, you know, it's kind of not scared to death, but you know, wondering. Because every time you move up in the minor leagues, they have more veterans on. They're allowed more veterans on each team. And they were just so much better because you come from A, you know, you got a bunch of goofballs playing, playing pro ball or you know, we're on a, a cow pasture almost. You're not like today's minor leagues. 
and you just keep moving up and say, "Wonder how in the hell do you get these guys out? They're so much better." You know, it's just can constantly figure that out. How are you going to do it? And knowing you, kind of knowing you can do it, but I mean, they're so much better than where I just came from. It just it was amazing how you you just go up one notch and they're they're just better. You know, more veterans played longer. They're better ball players at that level. So, and you just kind of figure it out, you know. And I I and I I changed my windup. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I changed my windup in in minor league because I didn't like my windup because I felt like I was underwater in a matter of speaking, you know, or throwing out of a paper bag. I said, "There's something, there's something I can't get out of there." So I had to figure it out myself and change my windup. And uh, as soon as I changed my windup, I was able to unleash, you know, as it were, my my skill set and what I had in my arm. It was it was light lights out. I said, "Oh, this is fun." So I could really throw hard as I wanted to without any laboring to throw hard, if you understand that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the kids today, they're, the mechanics are not good. And I, I, in pro ball, I actually changed my windup to get better, to get, let myself throw at the highest level. Like my, uh, my skill set would allow me to throw. So that's how I got started, you know. Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it's easy gas. It, it's it's if I can equate it to the hitting side of the of the ledger. I remember during my career, and, you know, as a hitter, you go in and out. I mean, you get on a hot streak, but now I'm struggling a little bit. And it seemed like those times where I was struggling, I'd go into that cage, and we'd hit for 20 minutes, and I'd come out of there sweating head to toe. Like, that was laboring (laughs) hard work. But it seems like when I was locked in, I was in the zone. I could hit for hours and just come out of that cage with not a drop of sweat on me uh, and just whistling. Like, this is so simple and so effortless. So I think when you talk about, you know, changing your windup, there there wasn't any effort there, but – but when you let go of the ball, it was easy gas. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And and it's all about finding that niche in your whether it's a pitcher or whether it's a hitter, finding that 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 comfort zone where yeah, that yeah. bat speed is just as fast, but I don't even feel like I'm I'm putting any effort into it. Yeah, accelerating the, the bat head without, you know, instead of holding on, he's just letting it go. It's like that lag feeling, you know. So and the same thing with pitching. It's on the other side of it though, you get this lag that wasn't there before because you're 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 endeavoring to throw hard instead of throwing hard easy. So I try to teach kids how to when I when I do teach I teach kids to throw hard easy by changing their mechanics so it puts them in that position. And just like hitting, you might be a little too tense or you might be on a sink with your your hip rotation or whatever. However, hitters see that and it's, a, it's the same thing because we're all built the same way. You know, you're looking for lag to increase your acceleration, bad head speed, or baseball throwing speed. You know, it's about the same thing. I think I, I think that's awesome. I mean, because I think where you're coming from, from from an educational standpoint, from a teaching standpoint, you said when you will give somebody advice or, or teach them, I don't think we hear that that often. But it, it but it really is brilliant. It's a, it's simplifying it as much as you can. But nobody ever thinks about it. You know, I, I, I watch kids train in different places these days, and it's we're doing this, and, and we're, we're always talking about data points. We're talking about exit velocity. We're talking about angles. When really we should yeah. talk be talking about effortless speed. Yeah, the synchronicity with the rotation, just like, just like throwing. You know, when you get 
Well, your front side t- stays closed, and, you, and when you go to unleash, everything comes comes out together. So all the energy is stored to do this. And same thing with pitching, same with hitting. You know, if your if your front side leaves, and you got to make it up with your arms and hands, you've, you've taken the power out of the rotation. And that's the same thing with throwing skills. That's. But you can see when people are on the sink. You know, that's you know that's what you know they call stepping in the bucket that way back when. That's because your front side's gone. You're, you've stepped in the buckets, and now you you can't accelerate the bat at speed the way where you want it. Just like pitching, when when people step over or step out, you know if they're not in line, that kind of basic stuff. So, but that that happens. But I but I knew there's something wrong with me, so I had to, I had to find a way to correct it. So it makes me understand kids. You know these uh, high school kids, even you know I I teach kids. Eight, nine, ten, and uh, you know they're—they're they're really, you know, they're—they're they're just a piece of clay. You know, they don't know what they're doing. They, but I teach more how to throw before I teach how to pitch. So you got to learn how to throw before you can pitch. I think so. So you can, you know, so you can, you can throw with with the, the least amount of effort, so you can save your arm. Because even the big leagues, they're throwing hard. But if you if you watch their mechanics, they're way behind in their mechanics. So. Where the holding the ball, they have to hurry up and accelerate back before they can come forward. Instead of being back and then going forward, they got so then now this you know with Tommy John surgeries are you know like two thousand surgeries or but but you can say that you can see that they're behind. They're gonna they're gonna throw hard, but they may not throw long. You know, so to have a long period, you got to smooth things out. You know, I would say. That's that's awesome. I could talk about this all day, but I don't have enough time because I don't think it's talked about <laughs> enough. I really don't. I don't think it's talked about. These are the nuances of the game. It's somebody that really yeah. understands their body and how you do it correctly. I mean, you can spend thousands and tens of thousands of dollars on these private lessons. And yeah. if you can really it, what you're saying about pitching and, and we can translate that to the hitting side, that right yeah. there, that knowledge it will supersede any lesson you can get from all these all these wonderful hitting and pitching gurus that we have in, in today's yeah. game. Yeah, I understand. Everybody's trying, but I, I tell these kids, I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna change you around. So I I, I want to see your personal math. I'm gonna introduce you to yourself at the best you can be for what you have to offer as far as in my case as far as throwing. So I'm gonna teach these kids to throw. So I change them around, and, and then the coaches, when they see that, they just can't believe the difference when these way these kids throw like holy tamale, you know, like a, they're not a little bit, but a lot, you know, that's because I'm putting I'm putting them in sequence. I'm, I'm creating the lag, how to how to unfold, you know, the you know the front leg, the toe, the front knee, the hips, then the shoulders come around, and the arms behind that, and just and you teach them. And I said. I want to see what you got. I want to, I want to introduce you to yourself. I tell the kids so I, I put them in a position so they can take a look at their arm, and they're a lot of times quite amazed that they can actually throw that hard. But it's it's just sequencing, just like in golf or you know any anything. Any, because we're all built the same way. If you're going to hit, you got to sequence. You know, you step in the bucket, you lost your power. Front side's gone. You know, you have to make it up with your hands and arms. So, you know, and that's the same thing in throwing. Introduce you okay. to yourself. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, all right. So, is, yeah. so you're in the minor leagues. You get to the big leagues really quick. You get to the big leagues when you're 20 years old. 65, you make your debut. But you don't become a part of that rotation in St. Louis till 67. 
You go 14 and nine, your first full season in that starting rotation. End up end up being a great year for you, you guys. End up winning the World Series, but Cepeda, uh, Bob Gibson, Roger Maris, Brock Flood, that is Steve Carlton in your rookie campaign. Those are your teammates. Uh, talk a little bit about those guys. Well, we knew we had we had talent. You know, when uh, when Maris came over from the Yankees, um, Shannon had to come out of right field and learn to play third base. And he's never did. I mean, if outfield had come to third base because everything is right on top of you so quick. So in spring training, you know, they'd hit him ground balls all day long. And Shannon's a football type of mentality. He'd sit there, just take it off the chest, feel whatever. He'd be, he'd be black and blue, you know. And he he learned to play third base because he had to, to give Maris that position in right field, you know, to strengthen that team. But we knew we were good. The, the Cardinals are uh, the, like one of the best teams as far as a team. They've moved in like synchronicity, and they knew exactly. They brought Brock and walk and flooded to hit a hit a ball behind them, you know, and to get them to at least a second, if not the third, and and then we're all be sitting in that position, first and third, or man on second, man on third, and uh, just perfect bad control. I mean, the, um, the team just was the best. The best team, the way they move in synchronicity, they were they were just one one star, one all-star kind of team, the way they played, just amazing to watch him. So, and I'm learning baseball because I don't know anything about baseball this time. I'm just watching these guys play, just amazed how they, what they could do, you know, hit the cutoff man and hit behind runners, you know, the, you know not, not a whole lot of home runs in the, in the, in the Cardinal organization, but, uh, but they knew how to play baseball and that's, that's what we got out of them. And, we, and it pays off, you know, 101 wins, guys win the World Series. You start game five. They only give you one run support that night. You end up losing the game. But you end up winning, getting your first ring. Uh, and, and you're off to the races, the, the infamous Steve Carlton career. Um, you get to 1971, first time you win 20 games. You go 20 and nine. Um you know, well, you're, how you're is missing, that? You're missing, you're missing the slider years. I didn't have a slider back then. You had a curveball? I didn't have a slider, I didn't have a slider until 69. I had fastball curveball only. That's that's a unique story unto itself. Well, um, let me hear shall it. I go, shall I go forward with this? Let's do it. Yeah. Because because Timmy and I, would, McCarver, would talk, said, he ended up, he's left. You need a ball that kind of moves sideways because I'm, you know, fastball. I had, a, I had a 12 to 6 curveball, you know, so it stayed in the same slot. So you throw it on the outside part of the plate and stay there. It wouldn't, it wouldn't intimidate anybody coming in. Fastball outside, curveball outside. So, and so all of, uh, all of 68, I worked on developing this slider pitch. And I started off throwing a cutter and trying to figure out. You know how I'm going to use this. I didn't know exactly what I'm doing here, but I figured it out. And uh, if on the, most of the year, I threw it on the side, you know, in front of the dugout, just playing around with the field and the and the spin. And uh, then I started, I started getting it to go down, and uh, and I throw. And then when I when I got to go down, the people would go to catch it because they used the ball going, you know, just more of a flat level. Then it went down. It just would be a late breakdown, and the ball going underneath their glove. So the catchers, until they really understood it, would miss the ball because it would go underneath their glove because it was a late breaking 
a pitch. It would go it would go sideways, and the bottom would drop out, which made it unique. And I don't know why that happened, but it did. So in '68, we uh, lost to Detroit, so we ended up touring Japan for five weeks. And uh, we, you know, we had about three weeks to a month. I forget when you went over. We had some time off, at least two weeks. Everybody's not really, you know, we're going to go play Japan. We're going to walk around, shake some hands and stuff like that. But when we went to Japan, they came out smoking. They were after us. They wanted, they wanted us bad, you know. So, you know, I gave up a home run to Sanaharu. Oh, uh, we, we, I think we might have lost the first three games. And we had a clubhouse meeting without the manager. Said We said, these guys are coming after us. We better get our butts back in shape. So everybody started to bear down, you know, said, it's not just goodwill. It's just, you know, these guys are trying to beat us, and we're not used to that. So Sarharo hits a home run off me uh, because I'm just fastball curveball at that time. And and you couldn't, you know, when you picked that leg up, you couldn't get him, you couldn't get him to back off the plate. So yeah, the next game of pitch, I said, Jimmy, I'm going to break out this new pitch. You know, I've been working on it, yada, yada. And, uh, so I warm up and um and um uh, uh, comes up and I, I throw I throw the slider right in his ribs you know, right at him and and he he just he sort of flew his hand threw his hands up so he thought he was going to get hit and the ball comes back over the plate and I said now that's a good pitch because he's a he was a really a good hitter and I got him off his game because he he couldn't he couldn't. He, he had to put that foot down somewhere else because the ball's been thrown at him. He thought he was going to get hit. So then I knew we had a, a pretty good pitch. So I take that into the the '69 season, you know, and uh, and I go forward with that. And that's when that's when I started to get a, a, you know ten ten strikeout games because uh, prior to that there was I rarely had a ten strikeout game you know all all that time. So. And keep going. You can jump ahead to seventy-one now if you want. <laughs> I wanted to get that leg. No, no, I love I love that, and it also <laughs> brings up another point for me. I, you know, during my time, Sadahara O was long retired. I never got to see him play live. Give the audience a little bit of a of a, of a feeling of okay. Japanese baseball is Japanese baseball. Uh, obviously, especially in today's game, it's inferior to the Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is the best players in the world. And, and a lot of Japanese, the best Japanese players are coming to Major League Baseball. But back at the time when you were on that barnstorming tour in Japan, give, give, me, a feel, give me a feeling of how good was Sada, how, how did Sadahara O, the you know, the most prolific home run, not only in Japanese history, all time. How did he stack up against the best big league guys back then? Uh, he was, he was quality. Um, like I said, he, I, you couldn't get him off the plate, but you know, all the, all, a lot of the hitters today pick up that front foot and do kind of the, the same, the same thing to get, to get a little more energy in their swing. Cause it, it keeps your, your hips shut. When you when you put that down, your hips are still shut. So when you rotate, you're rotating, you're accelerating that lag position on the bat head speed, you know. So it was quality. I mean, he was I don't know, he had 800 whatever home runs or whatever it was. So, but I mean, there was a a, pitch, a left-handed pitcher named, if I recall, his name was Inatsu, and they had they had some quality players, but they weren't deep in talent. You know, they couldn't they couldn't field nine guys that could compete in the, on the major league level. 
But they had some they have some guys at third baseman's quality. He was uh, you know, I think he was old timer at that time, like oh, but he was a, a quality uh, baseball player. But they couldn't field nine guys. It took them a lot of years to you know because they you know they were they were very good about developing their skills. They they learned they you know they learned from coaches here and they took information back and they started training differently and and developed some some good talent. So a lot of a lot of guys are coming out of that. You know, you can see in the in the major leagues, you know, this Otani guy and you know, quite unique. Um oh, no, Otani's ridiculous. They couldn't field nine guys as the main thing, you know. So. Yeah. Um you mentioned Timmy McCarver. Obviously, uh, anybody follows the game, especially back in, in the days you guys were playing. We had Timmy on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, a lot of uh, very uh, flattering things to stay about, say about uh, Steve Carlton. But it, but it's known you guys had a had a had a connection. You know, he was your catcher for a lot of years. Where did that relationship really, really uh, form? And and how did it become such a close relationship? He talked about a little bit. And we're going to get into it later about the pickoff move. Timmy said, Booney, I couldn't throw a lick. And Lefty helped me a lot with, with his pickoff move. But talk about uh, <laughs> Timmy and that relationship. Well, that's an interesting story because we didn't start out that way. My first big league spring training you know, I'm, I'm I'm a left-hander, a little bit outspoken, let's say, and I don't really know the protocol as far as seniority and stuff like that. So there's the, uh, Dick Grote, uh, Ken Boyer, and Timmy, you know, shaving after the game. And I come up behind Timmy after pitching. I said, Timmy, you got to throw more, call more breaking balls behind an account. And he just, he just went like, you see the veins in his neck popping out. I think he started cutting those old razors we used to do back then, you know. He just, he just started <laughs> missing his shaving his chin's bleeding. He was so infuriated because I embarrassed him. And because he was, he was a sort of, a, you know, he's like a two or three or four year catcher at that time. And uh, Boyer and then Grove, those are all the, the veterans and they started laughing. So we didn't start out the way we ended up, but we, we figured it out. You know, if I was just, I had to say it, I should have pulled him aside to say it, but I didn't because I'm, I, what did I know? You know? And then, uh, uh, what the thing about Timmy that Timmy w- was was everybody's catcher, you know, on the whole staff. He was he was the catcher. He worked. He was so good with Gibson and and the other other guys, you know, Dick Hughes, and, and but he was just really good. He he, he was a bridge player. I attribute this to his his skills of playing bridge because he would he remember all the sequence, all the pitches, how he got guys out, and then. We, we would get guys until we got in trouble, we'd get guys down a certain way, you know, and then we got in trouble. We'd go and we'd go to his weakness. So he would never just exploit weakness all the time. He would save that until we needed that, that sort of that trump card as it were. And, but he was that kind of guy, but he worked with, with the, with the whole staff. You know, it was just, he was my catcher the third time he got, we, we got together that's a long, longer story. At the end of his career is when he became my, my catcher on every fourth or fifth day, what it was. So, and that, that's the deal. And, uh, but no, he was, he was, he was a masterful. He, he didn't have a good arm. And, uh, that precipitates another, another story because Cepeda, I, I had a really, a really good pickoff move, obviously. And then I don't know if you know, your fans are know that, but I had a really good pickoff move. You call it a Bach move, but, I never balked, so 
you know what I mean? Anyway, Cepeda's <laughs> man on first base, and I, I come up to do my pickoff move, and, and Cepeda's got his hands on his knees looking at Timmy. And the man on first base, I said, oh, oh no, we're in trouble here because I'm going to first, and you got to go or else, you know, it's obviously blocked. So I said, I looked at I looked at Cepeda, I said, in my mind, I said, sorry, sorry Charlie, hit it right in the chest with the ball just so it wouldn't go down the right field line. And he hit it right in the chest. So I picked off my first baseman. That's a pretty good move. <laughs> really good move. But yeah, I, 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 I developed a good move. You know, spring training, you know, Ed, Ed Vargo come around and said, Ed, what, what are they going to not let me do this year as far as my move? You know, my first base move. So, and he said, well, here's what you can and can't do, yada yada. And one, and one year they put a, a line. You know, a 45 degree line. You know, you have to step on this side or that side so the umpires on first base could see where I'm stepping. So then that's where they went to try to mess with me. You know, because I I, I picked off a lot of guys, which you know, you, which it saves you. You know, you get that next out. You know, that's what you need. It keeps Timmy from trying to pick him off. <laughs> Throw in the second. Yeah, I tell you, you had a lot. It uh, most in the history of the game, 144 pickoffs. And yeah, you got called for a lot of box, but it was, it it was, I never balked, but the umpire, like you said, you hit your first baseman in the chest, you're fooling umpires too. And, and, you know, uh, interesting. I remember that. I remember watching film of you and because later in in my day, you know, Andy Pettit had a really good move and was he he not, yeah, was he not balking? And I thought that's a modern day Steve Carlton. So. Well, it, it lives it, on. It has to look like a balk to be a good move. It's called a balk move. But Without technically, I'm stepping on the first base side of that imaginary 45-degree line. You know, And that's because you used to be able to take your foot behind the, the pitching rubber, and then they stopped. They said, no, you can't do that anymore. And that had a lot to do with, with me making them change the rules because the runners are complaining. Because I was looking for every little inch of – trickery I could I could get you know so you used to be able to put your your foot behind the, the pitching rubber and they say oh, you can't do this so you have to pick it up and designate where you're going with it so I used to pick it up and hold it like to, you know, some of the pitchers today especially the the Japanese pitchers they'll come up and stop years ago you couldn't stop because of that because I'd come up and hold it and see what the the, the runner's going to do and then if they were going to take off I had the, I had the ability to bounce Instead of going home plate, I'd, I'd pick it up and I'd stop. And if they took off running, I would step to second base and throw it to the second baseman. And then they said, "Well, you can't do that anymore." So you know, I went through this with because I'm I'm trying to trick them because they're trying to get the edge on me. And you know, so well, you, you, it's a cat and mouse game, you know. Deal. So, uh, but it's uh, anyway, it worked, it worked out pretty good. And then I so the sort of used to holler at me all the time about balking. So I. I sent a ball over to Lasorda at where in the Dodger Stadium. I sent him over and said, "Tell me, I've never balked." And put and I had the the bad boy put it on his desk. He still he still laughed about that for years. <laughs> but I, to me, I never balked because I'm stepping in the same spot. I'm stepping on the a- on the first base side of that 45 degree line. But it, it's such a fine deal that I got called a lot of box, but he looked down. I said, well, that's the same place I looked, uh, you know, the last pitch I threw there. And that's, I'm stepping the same, just like stepping at home. I'm stepping in the same footprint. They're not moving around, you know? 
And so it's, to me, it wasn't a ball because it's, it's, I've done that two or three times before they call a ball come here. So look at my footprints right there in the same spot. So, did you, you know, ever you know, take, yeah. did you ever take into consideration because, because the move was so good, uh, it was so deceptive, but at the same time, did you ever think in a close ball game late, let's say runner on first and third, did you ever think, you know, in a tight game, I can't risk the great pickoff move now in case they call the Bach and that's a run. Did that ever creep into your mind? You know, I, 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 I can't recall that, uh, but, uh, but I'm still looking for the, an out wherever I can get it, you know? So, but I would, I would throw to first base. I would use a block move, you know, like it's three and oh, you're supposed to get try to try to get a strike and three and oh, you know, and I would, I would throw to first base on three and oh, and get a lot of guys snapping because you're not supposed to throw these uh, count situations. You're supposed to get a strike, but anything where I know they're not thinking that I'm going to do this, that's I'm thinking I'm going to do it. So that's right. I can't speak to the first and third part of that, but I, I don't think I was ever afraid to throw over there. You know, and I might have, I might have been, I might have given up a run that way, but I can't remember. I can't recall that. So, well, and also the umpire's got to have the, you know, let's be honest, got to have the balls in that situation to call a Bach first and third. You mean so that, it's kind of temerity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting you say though. Three zero. I'm not supposed to throw over. I'm supposed to be worried about throwing a strike to the hitter. I talked to Jeff yeah. Bagwell, you know, during our career, and I say, Baggy, how, how are you stealing 25 bases? You're not a base stealer. And he, and he said exactly what you said. He said, Booney, I run when they think I'm not going to run. 3 0. Yeah. 3 0. Yeah. That pitcher's so worried about throwing a strike that he's not worried yeah. about me. He goes, That's <laughs> when I take off. And you're, well, unless Steve Carlton's pitching, because now you got to know what he's thinking. That's the cat and mouse game. Yeah. Well, that's. Well, I mean, to be to be good at it, you have to think of why. When are they going to uh, put their guard down? Let's say, see, yeah. you know, Joe Morgan and Brock were always messing with me. Joe Morgan get that that lead out to the where the uh, where that cutout goes. He'd be standing on the on the outside of the cutout on the one way lead, and right. and if he he caught a he caught an inkling I'm going home because now he's got he's got three strikes closer to second base, and then Brock could do that walking run thing. But you'd have to guess when he's going to do it. And that, that's, you know, and to get these guys. So they're always trying to trick me. So I got to, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a game. It's a game inside and the game. It's, it's the got, best part of the game. They got, they got me a few times. I got them a few times. So that's the fun of it. You know, figuring it yeah. out. You know, like anything else. 71, you have another great season. You go 20 and 9. And you're playing for an owner. Augie Bush, and you've had a couple, you've had a couple contracts disputes with him after the '69 season. Uh, he didn't like yeah. your demands, and uh, how do you know how that? You know that? Yeah, you know that happened. To, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after that, I remember. So I think Augie Bush was even quoted as that's part of the reason he made the trade. So after '71, you have another. I believe it was after '70 or '71, you have another contract dispute with him. I don't think you went to spring training. You held out '70. Well, let me. But let you me get, actually, all right. Actually, I like when you tell the story better. Anyway, then we get it right. Well, I just want to fill in some of the how it, how we got there. You know, so he you know he had 
the German beer baron, beer baron is pounding on the desk, sign this, this contract, you know, in a little tougher words. But, and I said, no, Mr. Bush, I can't, in good faith, I can't sign it because, you know, I want, you know, want more money. Back, back then, a couple thousand dollars was more money. And then in 71, Oh, no. Well, the 70, I didn't, I didn't have a good season because of 69. I didn't have a spring training twice. I didn't have spring training. And, uh, and that, that hurt a lot because you're way behind, you know, and it's hard to catch up with no spring training. So in 71, I won 20 games for the first time. And, the, and, the, and prior to that, the Cardinals always said, uh, you know, like Bing Devine and Jim Toomey said, well, we can't pay you the money you want because you never won 20. That was all their, always on their argument because they always find the weakness where you, well, you haven't done this. It wasn't as good as yours last year. So when I finally won uh, 20, 20 games in, in 71, uh, you know, that's kind of when we got started, you know, said, you know, I really, you know, I won 20 games like you told me and now I want some, uh, some money. You know, I want, you know, and, you know, and then, you know cause I, I'd come from like 48,000 after, you know, six, six and a half years. So I think like 40, I wanted to go to 66, and I don't know why I picked that number, but I might have, you know, just arbitrarily came up with the number. So, and they said, no, you know, that's too much. You well, most we can give you is 60. So we got stuck at those two numbers. So opening day of spring training, I'm be like 8:30 in the morning. Bing Divine calls me, wakes me up, because I'm I'm getting ready to go down to spring training for, uh, in St. Pete for the Cardinals. And being divine calls me up, so lefty, we traded you to the to the Phillies. And I said, oh, you know, I didn't say holy shit, but what? I couldn't believe it because I just won 20 games. You know, I was looking forward to winning because the Cardinals are going to win 90, 95 games about every year. They were that good. So I had my, my number set up, what I was going to do in my future, the way I, I trained my brain to think. I was going to play this forward or quantum entangle this whole thing. I was going to win more games. This coming year, I, was, I had the number 25. I'd camped on it for like three months. I was going to win 25 games with the with the Cardinals. So he calls me up and tells me I traded the Phillies. I said, "Well, retrospectively, like, holy shit, because <laughs> the Phillies were the worst team at the time, and they always tried to bury you by sending you to the Phillies. They did it with with other players, you know." So I said, Jesus Christ. So I thought about it for maybe a half hour. I called Bing back. So I'll take, I'll take your offices. Lefty, it's too late. We already traded. You're gone. You're Rick Wise. And I was like in shock. Holy tamale. But I still had to go to spring training. So, so I fly into Tampa. Instead of going to St. Pete with the Cardinals, I go to Clearwater with the Phillies. And I'm just, I'm in shock for about, about a week. And I'm saying, what the hell is going on here? So I started thinking, so, well, if, if this mind stuff that I've been working on works, it'll work here. You know what I mean? So but the number was 25 in, for in 72. So I started, I started digging in and I got amazingly focused and like maybe a pain in the ass kind of a focus. You know what I mean? <laughs> but no, I'll no tell you, you're my teammate. Up. You're taking, you're taking the hill every fifth day. You can be as big a pain in the ass as you want. You win twenty five games. No, every every fourth day. Oh, that's right. That's back in the day. We're we're on we're on the so four Luke, man rotation. Luke Casey, 
I, I, you know, I, I, I pitched 500. I'm not sure how it started. I pitched about 500 for the first month, something like that. And, uh, and I was pitching well, but I'm, you know, so I'm still about 500, but Casey started pitching every fourth day because I'm coming from the Cardinals where I pitch behind Gibby. So every fifth and sixth day, cause, uh, cause you have a day off, you know, so you, but every, every day off I had with the Phillies, Casey would bump the starter and put me in this position. So I had 41 starts that year. And, and, the, and, the, and that was a strike year. So I could have had maybe eight or nine more starts. Uh, I think I'm not sure the numbers, but so I, then I think I got on a roll and I said, I won uh, pitching. I won 15 in a row on with that on that team, you know, and, uh, and like the middle of August, I won my 20th game on the fifth, my 15th win in a row. So, uh, I mean, I mean, but it's, I mean, we just, you know, just, you get like amazingly focused, like when you guys get in the zone, when you're hitting, like everything's like just happens. So, but so, you know, there's something clicked and it just started just, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't miss. I never threw a probably ball over. I never threw a ball over the heart of the plate. I could throw it on the corner and a half a ball off the corner, you know, and I had a slider. So I got, you know, getting guys inside, tying them up, and uh, everything just clicked just in, the, in that zone. So it just went crazy. So instead of winning 25 with a last place ball club, I won, I won 27, which is like holy tamole kind of territory. Well, it's it's one of the greatest. It's one of the greatest years ever. I mean, it's 27 yeah. and 10 with a one nine. And your team wins 59 games. I mean, how are the other pitchers on your staff? How can they even, how can they even shower with you after the game? Weren't they, weren't they ashamed? No, I mean, everybody's doing their job. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just being the best I can be. Cause I'm, I'm out there every fourth or fifth day. So I just, I'm in charge that day. So I'm the quarterback in a sense, you know, I'm starting pitcher. And I just, with, you know, with the thinking I had intact, you know, I'm just, I'm putting me together. I'm demonstrating to me what is capable when you put mind and body together is, is my, where I got at that point, you know, to put to, to think in a particular way that I was taught to put these things together and then go out and perform accordingly. So I'm just putting mind and body together, just set a body. Because, I mean, you know, the Cardinals, I remember a two-to-one lead in the top of the ninth, you know, make one bad pitch against the Pirates and I'm losing <laughs> three-to-two. And with my thinking corrected, I eliminated the one bad pitch, let's say, in a critical situation where you can the game's on the line. So I eliminated where I where I could have failed. I I blocked that out and and took this sort of focus, let's say, to a to a higher level in my in my mind. So you know what I mean? That kind of stuff in the zone. We're in the zone. In the zone. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 